0: Imagine a tomorrow, powered by innovation, bringing the world together through real conversations about world-changing ideas, expert discussions with no boundaries. Coming up.
1: When I started Second Life, and when I talked about it in 2006, I said, we're all gonna spend some of our lives as avatars and some of our lives as real people. And 20 years on from that now, or almost 20 years, I think what we've learned is that that's not true for most of us. Most of us have an ability to invest in sort of one primary identity, one avatar, if you will, and that avatar is our physical body.
0: This is The Real Conversations Podcast by Nokia. Here is Michael Hainsworth. We're building two metaverses, one for society and one for the corporate world. But in reality, the metaverse has existed since 2003 when Second Life founder Philip Rosedale decided he didn't just wanna make another video game, he wanted to create a world where we could all come together. So 19 years later, I want to uncover what lessons the creator of the world's first metaverse learned so that we can apply them to the social and
1: corporate metaverses that we're building today. Second Life was unique, and I and I think it was hard to describe at the time. It was probably uh, hard to describe to investors, hard to describe to people that were uh, hearing about it for the first time, so uh, per- perhaps more of a challenge then than today, but Second Life was a pretty different idea. It, it came from the dream that I had as a kid, not to play a video game or have any particular kind of experience, but instead to basically sort of simulate the laws of physics inside one or more computers, and then create a kind of a blank space that people could build in. So this idea of allowing people to collaboratively make things in a world that they were sharing together uh, that had kind of its own laws of physics and its own was its own universe, if you will, that, that was what really uh, motivated me. And that was what I created with Second Life.
0: Tell me about the difference between a lean back experience and a lean forward experience. You didn't want to just make another video game.
1: Right, right, exactly. And and I think for lots of good reasons, many people that have worked in this space and are working in it today uh, were inspired by video games. But yeah, I felt like the thing that we needed to do, and I think some of this was, you know, the timing that You know, I was born kind of computers were available to me, but the Internet was not, you know, as a teenager. So for me, the Internet was the big transformation. And what I wanted to do was this lean in experience of allowing people to engage with each other in as much as possible the same way that they do in the real world and contrast that to the entertainment and a lot, of, a lot of even multiplayer game experiences are a kind of a lean back where you are relaxing at the end of the day. And, you know, you don't want to create new relationships with new people. You're, you're just trying to, you know, relax a little bit, maybe, you know, play a game together. And of course, there are other people on that game. But that's a very different thing than this idea of really recreating reality and then expecting and allowing and, and enabling people to do everything that they do in their waking life, you know, in a virtual world.
0: So how do you do that? It, it's often referred to as a, a sandbox environment. Right. You create a series of tools, you give them uh, enough sand, and they can make
1: castles. It's a great way of putting it, you know, a sandbox. Uh, precisely. I mean, if, if you imagine creating a simulated world that, that, that has got, you know, rules that apply to everybody when they're there. The question is then, how do you kind of fairly distribute resources amongst us? I mean, we as humans have an innate sense of fairness and it's very important. You know, we'll only engage in things that seem fair. And so a lot of the challenge was creating a sandbox where everybody kind of had access to the same amount of sand, if you will. And and then a you know there's another challenge, which is as people began I think this one was one that I learned more about as time went by, as people come into that world, you know, they're going to engage with each other in every creative and experimental way they can and you know some of those are going to be conflict and so how do you also enable a kind of a civil society to exist uh, again in much the same way that we see in the real world that, so that were the big pieces and there were uh, there are big components of it you know that i mentioned the sort of laws of physics a common set of rules that everybody understands i can build i can move this to the left or right i can change the color of this thing over here Um, And then another one is economy. Uh, If you you think about it much, you realize that everybody's going to want to specialize and engage in trade, just like we do in the real world. And so in a virtual world to enable that, and this was especially true in 2003, you have to have some sort of a mechanism for an economy. And so that led to a lot of work in Second Life. And then finally, moderation. You know, what are the rules by which people engage with each other? How do they form groups? How do they form the same sort of uh, political and social and economic structures that we form in the real world. So lots of work there.
0: Well, tell me more about some of those lessons that we learned as a society from Second Life in its early days, and, and maybe to a degree, those massively multiplayer online games as well. Things that created their own communities, that we can. these lessons that we can now apply to metaverse, I suppose, metaverse 2.0, if you
1: were metaverse 1.0. Talk to me about it from that sociological perspective of what we learned. Gosh, there's so many things. I I think one thing we learned was that people, we are social animals, you know, we are successful as human beings mostly because we've enabled, we've we've come up with these different ways of helping, collaborating with, uh, uh, working together on things. And I think we really saw that in Second Life. So people that were coming in immediately formed groups, found friends, and engaged with each other in a way that I didn't suspect. I always thought that some of the people, perhaps even ones like myself that came in, say, with an engineering background, would kind of work in there alone, uh, you know, in the same way that you might program at your desktop. And yet when we talked to them after a year that they'd been there or something, they all said, you know, what keeps me here is the connections with other people and the specific relationships, collaborative projects, and everything that I have with others. So I think one thing we learned is that we're social. And this is a message of hope for the world right now, because we are, we need each other and we like each other. And we're mostly, most of the time, good to each other. And I think we really saw that and continue to see that uh, inside Second Life.
0: Second Life peaked at a million participants in 2009. It it hasn't really grown beyond that level. It's like there's a ceiling to it. What does that tell you about the likely adoption of the metaverse as a second reality for day-to-day life?
1: Right. So everybody showed up in Second Life around 2006. And in about 2008 or 2009, Second Life reached about a million people using it. And that's about where it is today. It, It leveled off. It's grown some during COVID. It's actually grown pretty well over the last few years, as you can imagine. But, yeah... What I've learned from that is that, uh, well, what I think I've learned is that virtual worlds are not for everyone. And that is a real, that is still true today. It's still true with VR headsets. And it's going to be true for this next version of the metaverse that people are trying to kind of start right now. Um, What I thought, when I started Second Life and when I talked about it in 2006, I said, we're all going to spend some of our lives as avatars and some of our lives as real people. And 20 years on from that now, or almost 20 years, I think what we've learned is that that's not true for most of us. Most of us uh, have an ability to invest in sort of one primary identity, one avatar, if you will. And that avatar is our physical body. And we engage almost entirely with the people that are physically around us in the real world. Now, there are a bunch of different reasons why uh, the people that are in second life choose to be there. And there's a very diverse set of reasons that brings them there, but they've all made a very interesting choice. They've decided to kind of make that one representation, a digital one. They've decided to kind of, in many ways, uh, give up or, or, or make very secondary the experience of a physical body and instead really invest themselves in a digital avatar. And I think that the challenges and the reasons why that happened are the exact, they're still here today. We we still face them and metaverse creators in the future will face them and we'll have to navigate them as the science problems get solved that I think might get us past that.
0: Do you think that the the architects of the modern metaverse understand that most people don't want to live a double life?
1: I don't think so. I, I think that we're jumping into this, frankly, in much the same way as we did in the early 2000s with Second Life. Without a real understanding of um, what it's going to take to get everybody on board, uh, to get, for example, uh, adults that want to go into a business meeting and maybe meeting new people in that meeting, accepting of doing that meeting as an avatar. And I think there are some really uh, big challenges to that. And I think the companies that are staking claims in the space today are largely less aware of the problems than, for example, we have been at Second Life.
0: There seems to be, from a non-social perspective and more from a corporate perspective, sort of two avenues that we're going down on the metaverse. We're going down the, let's all have a corporate meeting in the metaverse, which some might argue oh my God, you know, this this meeting could have been an email and now it's not only a meeting, but it's a meeting in the metaverse. Um, and then there's the other side of, well, we're a sneaker company and we need to make sure that we've staked our claim in the metaverse for sneakers. Um, tell me about that sort of bifurcation on the corporate side of things. and Because we had a similar sort of land rush in the corporate world on Second Life as well.
1: Yeah, we did see exactly the same thing. People uh, coming into Second Life, uh, the companies coming into Second Life did so with great enthusiasm. They wanted to, uh, you know, stake out, uh, in many cases, quite literally a space in this emerging virtual world. And they were early in doing that because we did reach this, as we just discussed, we reached this cap uh, of a smaller number of people uh spending time there than we thought we were going to so yeah and then there's two different pieces to that that you just mentioned you know the on the brand side and on the you know presenting ideas to people marketing selling things you know uh explaining who you are as a company there's a set of challenges that are i think more dependent on the size of the audience and the diversity and you know expanse of that audience and so we've just got to get you know 100 million, say, you know, adult consumers into virtual worlds before they can become that promise. But I do think the early activities made by brands and companies in many cases are good experiments that are going to teach them a lot. Look at something like IBM and Second Life, who tremendously invested in things like uh, corporate brainstorming sessions in in the virtual world. And that was, you know, that was amazing to see in 2006. And I think they understand that space a lot better now uh, than a lot of companies. So I think there's value in doing that. As you touched on, the idea of doing a, say, a company meeting, is a whole different set of problems and tickles some of the biggest sort of science problems that we have with uh, with virtual worlds and with virtual reality. You know, people that are, say, going into a business meeting where there are the complex dynamics of, say, a new person in the meeting, your boss in the meeting, <laughs> a lot going on. They are going to demand uh, things like perfect spatial audio and nonverbal cues being communicated with low latency and those things are incredibly important and across the board we're just not there yet with delivering that to an experience and i think that's why you know there's a little bit of uh pushback on some of the presentations we've seen say from uh, uh facebook recently about uh you know putting on a vr headset and going to a meeting you know there's a lot of challenges with that and i and i think people broadly get that you know we may be farther away from that future than we think
0: What are some of those other big science problems that need to be addressed if we're going to see a critical mass adoption of the metaverse?
1: Well, the most practical one and the one that I think most everybody would cite is just comfort. Um, You know, to put a headset on your face... Uh, today and uh, have an experience that lasts more than thirty minutes is almost impossible for most people. the The weight of the device on the bridge of your nose uh, it, it is too high right now. You know, it's about five hundred grams, and it needs to be about say two hundred grams, the weight of a pair of ski goggles or something like that, for you to be comfortable having say an hour long meeting. So that that, that that that's a really practical problem that can be solved by making these devices lighter. Uh, A more subtle problem, and one that we explored really richly at High Fidelity, where we built a whole open source uh, VR headset-enabled virtual world, is that different people have a very different willingness to wear these headsets. Another way of putting it is, right now, putting on a VR headset is a lot like putting on a blindfold, and your willingness to put a VR headset on, therefore, is a lot like your willingness to blindfold yourself in a room where there may be other people. Everybody's got a little bit of discomfort about doing that. But some people have a lot more discomfort than others. And what that ends up doing is creating an early uh, VR headset world, for the example of, you know, people wearing these things, that is not a diverse and inclusive uh, set of people yet. And as, as somebody trying to build a social world where people could, you know, meet anybody they wanted to there, that was a real problem and continues to be. So there
0: are some hardware limitations that play a role in the metaverse adoption. I, I wonder if it's if it's not just beyond the, the weight. Like I've I've worn a, a Meta Quest Two headset and watched a Netflix movie, and about a good thirty minutes in, I'm finding myself holding it up with my hands or lying on my back so that the weight is more evenly distributed. Exactly. Uh, I, I wonder if maybe because VR is expected to be anywhere from ten to twenty percent of the overall market, whereas augmented reality is expected to be the lion's share of revenue in the future. Does this tell us that the metaverse isn't a VR experience? It's an AR experience.
1: I think it's a little hard to say. There's so much at play there. One thing is that the AR experience is even harder from a science perspective to get finished because we have to have lighter devices. We have to be able to see people's eyes through those devices while they're seeing things out, you know, as a result of the projections. And that's really difficult. We haven't folded up optics yet and made them light enough to have good AR glasses. But I do agree that once we get to that, which I think is going to be, say, 10 years compared to maybe five years for some of the virtual world experiences we're going to see grow. Uh, once we get to those devices, I would tend to agree with you that, that some amount of pass through some feeling of safety awareness of the real world around you, uh, may be a more dominant, uh, usage mode. Although I would say, you know, having worked on it for a long time, that fully immersive VR worlds, once we get the problem solved for them are going to be unbelievably compelling at all as well. Maybe I say that with a bias being the second life guy, (laughs) but, uh, you know, I, I do like the idea of complete immersion.
0: Well, have you seen the movie The Kingsman, where they all sit around the boardroom table? Sure. And only one of them is actually there, and the rest are sort of virtual um, avatars that are, I suppose, holograms more than anything else. Lancelot was an outstanding agent and a true Kingsman. He would be sorely missed. To Lancelot. To, to, to Lancelot. Lancelot. That sort of feels like a more effective metaverse in the long run. But yeah. if that's a decade away, tell me about the next five years, because it, it, it sounds like the, the idea of not wanting to be blindfolded and the fears associated uh, with putting on a VR headset, weight issues aside, is is that a generational thing? Is that the, the boomers don't want to do that? Because what kind of crazy nonsense is, is that? Or But the kids today, they'd be into it?
1: You know, that's an interesting one for me. I'm fortunate enough to have four kids, all of whom are Generation Z kids, range range right now from 15 to 22, and uh, two boys and two girls, in fact. So I've really gotten a, a, a diverse set of inputs on this stuff. And what I've actually seen is the opposite, which is fascinating. That is, the boomers and the Generation X and the you know people at work today that are... Uh, making decisions, and in many cases, managing or building projects like these, presume that the the, the Generation Z kids are actually going to have a greater willingness to be avatars. I've actually found the reverse to be a little bit true. Um, kids are so immersed today in uh, in a lot of information, much of which is kind of performative or misinformation or disinformation, that what I've actually seen when I've talked to Generation Z participants is a greater desire for this uh, video nonverbal information, and so when I when I when I've when I've watched kids uh, do live gatherings, they are typically doing them with audio, good audio, often like using tools like Discord, for example, to get together and talk to each other, or they're actually using things like FaceTime, where they're just kind of demanding that video authenticity from each other, and 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 really demanding a lot of presence. So I actually think that we may have a Uh, funnily enough, we may have a bit of a steeper hill to get over with Generation Z than with Generation, say, X. That's
0: interesting. I I would have assumed that the kids would have been more dialed into the world of technology and more willing to adopt new technologies than older generations.
1: You know, they're using it asynchronously. Kids are using things like uh, filters in TikTok uh, or Instagram to create content. But remember that that content is asynchronous. It's typically posted and consumed later by an audience. It, it's the live case that I'm talking about, and it's the live case that's going to drive VR and AR. That Kingsman meeting you mentioned, you know, is is the fantasy that we want to get to, but there's still a lot of challenges there. How is there a little drone floating in front of each one of those person's faces that's doing that crazy volumetric capture that we saw in the film? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, how are we going to get that out there? And let me let me tell you that you know, hanging a camera in front of somebody's face like you see in the movies, yeah, that's not going to happen for people going to business meetings.
0: After this podcast, learn more about this and other insightful topics by going to nokia.com slash real conversations. There you'll find additional information linked to today's podcast. So, what are some of the other uh, issues that the corporate world, when building the metaverse, will have to address to ensure there is the adoption, not just because they're throwing a ton of money at it, but because it is an effective means of communication? Uh, We wouldn't be, I like to say, we wouldn't be going down this path if there wasn't a a value add at the end of the day. How do we ensure there's value add and how do we get there?
1: Well, though some of the corporate uses of VR uh, and AR, right yet are already showing a lot of opportunity. You know, when there's an information rich display, like examining a 3d work in progress, or, you know, looking at the engine of an airplane or something like that, there's already a great business case for using both VR and AR devices to do that. And and we're seeing a lot of that. Um, However, I think what you're talking about is really this, this, you know, this, this bigger future of everybody being in social spaces or workspaces or larger meetings or things like that. So uh, some of the other things that need to be captured, first of all, larger meetings. Um, Most of the things that we want to do as human beings uh, socially involve a lot of other people. You know, when you're in a social environment, whether it's a, say, live music or uh, a large meeting, a town hall meeting, something like that, a sporting event, you are surrounded by tons of other people. And believe me, and, and I've, you know, I've worked on it for a decade now with High Fidelity Get, getting a ton of people digi- digitally in a room is both Im- critically important and very hard. There's a lot of cloud streaming, edge, endpoint type challenges associated with providing high bandwidth and low latency to a lot of people at the same time. That both the corporations and the and the and the carriers and service providers that are connecting them to people are going to have to uh, figure out. So scale is one uh, really big thing, and then. Another thing is this, this issue of moderation. Um, how do we all get along um, in a virtual space? We've seen moderation on asynchronous things like Instagram, um, and, and, e- and even those things that have been done. They've been done very centrally, and they've been done in a way that I think many would argue are totally inadequate for human needs. As we move into live spaces where there are thousands of people together at the same time, the sort of centralized after-the-fact moderation isn't, in my opinion, going to work. We're going to need to build uh, tools for what I always like to call uh, fair fighting, uh, a term I borrowed from a, a noted uh, you know, thinker in this space, Daniel Allen, who writes about politics and civic spaces. Fair fighting is you know the ground rules of the space should enable people as much as possible to resolve their own disputes. And I think that is a very complex topic and one that, you know, some of, some of the people listening have probably explored or seen a little bit with things like, you know, how do we put bubbles around each other to protect ourselves in VR and problems like that? So there's a big, how do we all get along challenge, which I personally find very inspiring to work on and I think doable, but it's like everything else. It's going to be a few years work.
0: Yeah. Tell me about that because, you know, I know from my own experience with uh, MetaQuest's Horizons, that uh, they recently added the ability to put a, a four foot barrier between you and someone who is not a friend of yours to avoid the trolls coming right up to your virtual face and literally and metaphorically getting up in on your grill type of thing. Um, <laughs> and, and just the ability to, to to click a button and go, that person doesn't exist in my virtual world anymore. Seems like an easy solve.
1: But let's just talk about that for a second, because I can show you where you get into trouble there clicking a button and saying that person doesn't exist in my world anymore is actually, uh, it's, it's good. It, it, it's an immediate safe zone, right? You're immediately safe and that's great. And and the reason for that is that uh, having somebody within reach of you basically uh, is called the peripersonal space in, in, in neurobiology. And we all as, as living things have an exquisite sense of that peripersonal space. So it's just like you said, when somebody, gets up in your face it means within arm's reach of you and it's a very very uh it can be a very alarming and upsetting thing whether you're virtual or real so that's important but just disappearing somebody isn't Necessarily, or across a lot of people, going to be the right answer. And the reason for that is, if I make, if there's three of us standing here, and I make you disappear, and the other person makes me disappear, we've got a really bizarre, almost psychedelic, you know, hallucinogenic situation where we're each experiencing a different reality that we've sort of customized with our bubbles. And we know where that went with things like, you know, Facebook groups. Uh, we know that allowing people to filter out their own experience creates this weird dystopia where everybody is living in a different world. And we don't want that to happen. The reason why Second Life causes people to almost uniformly behave really quite well to each other is not that they're able to do that, but that they're able to abide by the ground rules of the space that they're in and all experience the same thing.
0: Let's bring this back to the corporate meeting with the boss in the metaverse, particularly uh, in a work-from-home environment. First of all, do do you feel like the corporate metaverse is getting a lot of traction because COVID happened and that it it told us that we could work from anywhere?
1: Well, COVID was the starting gun, right? I mean, we suddenly... Actually, I would say broadly, you know, this, I think of the metaverse idea as being the sort of 2D to 3D transition, but also the idea of a live internet. And I think COVID suddenly said, hey, uh, all of these things that you used to do live in the real world, you're not going to do anymore. So you've got to find online alternatives. And so, yes, it's been absolutely fascinating. But what have we learned from COVID, right? Well, we've learned that video is important we, and, and it's very difficult to get beyond it. As yet, um, we've also learned that video communication is inadequate, particularly for large groups. You know, it's extremely fatiguing to participate in a group meeting. You can't hear people. That's what we work on with spatial audio at high fidelity. You, you can't hear people to talk at the same time. And you don't get, perhaps most importantly, you don't get all this body language and gaze signaling that we just have come to, uh, you know, sometimes we forget we're doing it all the time. And COVID really showed us. What a hard situation that is, and how much more work there is to be done before we can have, say, a big, uh, you know, company get together online.
0: So it sounds like there's a, a hardware solution to that as well, with the next generation VR headsets that will have inward-facing cameras that will be able to replicate our body language.
1: I think so. I, I, I would note, though, that you know, in addition to those inward cameras seeing our faces, and by the way, they really need to see our mouths. We know what happened in COVID when we. Covered our mouths. Um, it was surprisingly upsetting, um, which is fascinating in itself. Right. Um, I I found that part particularly interesting, but we also have these critical pieces of body language, like how my shoulders are turned. Am I, am I turning my shoulders to let the person that just walked up join the conversation? Or am I staying pointing at the person I'm talking to, to give that subtle kind of stay away. I'm busy now signal. You know, we can't convey that in virtual reality yet because we don't know where a person's shoulders are. Similarly leaning forward, like we talked about earlier and leaning back is a very, very important piece of signaling. And without knowing where your hips are. We can't do that with your avatars. And of course, our avatars don't have hips and they don't even have legs, some of them. Right. And so uh, you're not able to convey some of these critical pieces of nonverbal cueing.
0: That's a very interesting point. When Mark Zuckerberg showed off the latest iteration of his avatar one of the big complaints of it was that it looked like 2010's Nintendo Wii. there was nothing below the belt. It was all very cartoon like. Do you see that as an impediment that this cartoon like nature of the avatar as we know it today?
1: You know, I think it's more I, I mean I think that the rendering and the graphic detail and the textures and whatnot and you know how how cool my hair looks or whatever that that that's gonna matter. But I actually think the nonverbal cues matter more. In other words, my guess is, is that if we had an avatar that looked like those Mark Zuckerberg avatars we've all been seeing, that moved its face and leaned and moved its body just exactly as his did. In fact, so well that, for example, if Mark Zuckerberg walked into a room and you knew him and worked with him every day, wearing an avatar that, that you didn't recognize and, and didn't speak yet, but just moved his body, you know, you'd actually say, I think that's Mark. And I think that technical challenge, conveying those nonverbal cues well enough to identify a friend uh, immediately, is a big deal uh, that, that we've got to get solved first. I think that'll be more impactful than improvements to the render quality.
0: So when it comes to your advice to the telecom companies, the CSPs who are providing the backbone for the technology behind the metaverse, you've brought this up a couple of times already, graphic fidelity is all well and good, but it sounds like... The ultra-low latency that comes with 5G and related technologies,
1: that's of a greater priority. Exactly. When I first heard about 5G, I was excited, not because of capacity, but because of latency. Um, human beings, uh, when they communicate together, move their bodies in synchrony, for example. And so, if you delay uh, you know, hearing and seeing somebody by more than about two-tenths of a second, by about 180 milliseconds, you stop liking each other. You stop being able to kind of get in sync with somebody, as we say sometimes, literally. Um, So, latency is critical. And the good news is, if you use 5G, and if you use the right kind of edge deployment strategy of this technology, you can get to uh, an experience where everybody in the world actually can, can, can be communicating with each other with about 100 milliseconds of latency. So, there is a really uh, a big adventure and a, and a huge opportunity in creating sort of 100 millisecond latency between any two people in the world.
0: And in addition to 5G, I suppose the other critical infrastructure technology behind that is the near edge cloud.
1: Right, right. And and there, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. Cloud streaming, you know, there's so many experiments going on. I don't even you know, and I love this stuff. I'm not even sure what's gonna kinda win out as a strategy, but there's you know, pushing the rendering to the edge of the cloud, streaming to the devices. I do think there's a lot of merit to that. It's funny that we've seen so many kind of misfires with it in gaming, but I think that it's a big idea and a big deal. Um Uh, You know, just deploying in such a way that you really do find those nearest endpoints and you do dynamic routing, maybe peer to peer, point to point when you need to. There's a lot of opportunity there. So we've talked about a
0: lot of hurdles that need to be overcome for mass adoption of the metaverse. Are you confident that we will see that critical mass?
1: Well, I think we're going to see bits and pieces get done in different ways. I'm, 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 I'm going to let me let me say I'm profoundly an optimist. I'm not yet fully confident because these are science problems. You know, they're problems which are not problems of scaling or deployment. They're problems of basic R&D. So we don't know yet how to make that avatar where when your avatar walks into a room, I know it's you. Um, but I, I do think we'll get there. But I think there are unanswered tech questions to getting there. That said, I think there are going to be areas like let, let, let's take education, for example. Um, going to school with a group of people and being face-to-face with a teacher, being able to type and take notes while you're doing it, which, by the way, is the big problem with, you know, existing technology. That is going to unlock opportunity and is going to be minimally acceptable to people um, and have an enormous impact as it gets figured out. The Real Conversations
0: Podcast by Nokia. Building a future that's sustainable, productive, and inclusive together. Discover how by visiting nokia.com slash no boundaries.